Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is a live edition of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is Friday, May 27th, 2022. And just like five seconds before the show started, I saw in my little studio there's a fly going around. And this is going to bother me for the entirety of my time on air. So I just want to warn you now, if you're watching this in the video form and you see my eyes darting around, I'm not looking out for like, you know, Klaus Schwab's assassins, not that they exist, coming after me. No, no, no. There's just a fly in my studio that apparently took over in my absence, which if you've been following online and following True Norse coverage, you know, was over the past week in Davos, Switzerland where the World Economic Forum annual meeting was taking place. And I should say, I mean, we had a tremendous, tremendous time covering this. There was a lot going on, a lot to get to. Uh, We had people working back in Canada to uh, churn out the content that we were collecting. And then I was also solo on the ground in Davos, Switzerland, talking to people on the ground, talking about some of the oddities of Davos, of which there are a great many. So I literally just got back yesterday. I haven't even gotten like a full night's sleep yet, but I thought it would be great to do a Davos debrief, talking a little bit about my experience and recapping some of the coverage that we found really resonated with people. And I'll give some analysis on that. And also I wanted to take your questions because the whole reason I went over there was to demystify this thing, to demystify this this organization, the World Economic Forum, and also the Davos Summit, which is shrouded, shrouded in a lot of questions, a lot of criticism, a lot of conspiracy theories, depending on who you ask. And because of that, you get people that just dismiss criticism of it when it's warranted and when it's justified. So I, I thought it would be great to just do a, a throw out the format and actually take your questions and do what we can to talk to all of you about what it is that you have as far as questions are concerned about what happened there. And we'll try to do it because I was getting, and I just want to put this in context here. I was getting, like my phone is a little bit better now. I mean, in the last five minutes, I'm just looking and I've got, you know, a handful of notifications, but my Twitter was just blowing up where here, I'll see if I can show you. So, you know, I guess it's going to be hard to to demonstrate on camera, but where you look at it, you refresh it, and then a second later, you refresh it, and there's a whole bunch more stuff. So it was just nonstop because so many people were, were following, especially the videos that we were putting out, which I think were so important because this isn't some shadowy cabal of people that are in the mountains of Switzerland pulling the strings on the world. It's a group of people that have influence and are very transparent about what their goals are. They're very honest. They're very proud of it. The things that they were bragging about in the annual meeting, in in the public sessions, the things that you could watch online, the things they were bragging about were were things that I would be like, why why should we be proud of that? Why are you you telling us this and, and telling us this as though it's a good thing? So if you're watching on Facebook or you're watching on YouTube, uh, post your questions and we'll try to get through as many of them as we can. If you're listening to the podcast, it means that this is no longer live. So I can't take your questions, unfortunately, but we will try to revisit some of these things in the future. In the meantime, though, I I wanted to go over some of the highlights that uh, took place from this thing, because the one clip that went 
absolutely viral in the truest sense of the word. Millions and millions and millions of views. I think on Twitter alone, on my Twitter, it was up to over 3 million this morning. That was this guy, J. Michael Evans, who is the president of the Alibaba Group, which is a Chinese company, very deep ties to the state. And he is a Canadian. I mean, that's the, the part about it that's so insidious. He's one of these Westerners that uh, Chinese companies have bought up to do their work. And he was talking about this technology that Alibaba Group is so excited about that will track your carbon footprint. Take a look. Developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. We don't have it operational yet, but this is something that we're working on. Now, I, I'm having a coffee right now that I made upstairs, which I'm, I'm told is good because I didn't go to the neighborhood Starbucks to get it. So I actually go up uh, five carbon points in the social credit Alibaba system that they're developing. Although I did just fly home from Switzerland, so I lost like 500 uh, points on the Alibaba carbon credit system. And some of the defenders came out on this and were saying, oh, but I mean, he's saying it's voluntary. It's for people that want to track their carbon footprint. And I'm like, you know, I remember when vaccination was mandatory. I remember when social distancing and wearing masks or, uh, were voluntary, rather. I remember when, when uh, you know, all of these things were things that you chose to do. When you could choose to get vaccinated, you could choose to wear a mask, you could choose to do that, and now they're mandatory. So when I hear some of the people talking about a climate emergency and a climate, uh, you know, what do they want to do, climate lockdowns, I start to think maybe, just maybe, we should be very wary of anyone telling us that something like this is going to be voluntary and remain voluntary. So that's the whole point of this here, is that, yeah, Alibaba Group is developing this thing. For starters, for the people of China, it may not be voluntary. We know the Chinese state has its tentacles in pretty much all data collected by Chinese companies for whatever reason, and that's uh, true. Alibaba Group has not been immune from that in the past. And the other side of this is that it's literally a climate version of the social credit system. It's the climate version of social credit, of, of developing some mechanism of tracking your worth as a citizen vis-a-vis -vis your so-called carbon footprint. And he's talking about this as though it's a great thing. And most people listening, it was interesting seeing the response to that on Twitter because originally, I mean, my audience is very fairly conservative. So originally it was people on the right saying, see, I told you so, this is what they're planning. And then people on the left started to turn on it as well because people on the left don't like the elites with their private jets either for different reasons. So then I had people on the left saying, why are you going after individuals when you should be going after the oil companies and going after this? And, and I don't agree with their output. I don't agree with their conclusion. But at a certain point, I'm like, you know, we've got the right and the left that all seem to hate this. And I'm like, who's for it? Who's for it? And, and this is one of the reasons when people have asked why it's so important, why people are paying attention to the World Economic Forum is because the axis has shifted 
in politics. Uh, and this goes back years. I mean, Donald Trump is a great uh, example of this. In 2016, he didn't win because of conventional conservative votes. He won because there was a large contingent of the left behinds, the people that felt like politics was no longer representing them. We see this in the rise of the People's Party. We see them in the rise of a lot of European uh, right-of-center movements. And you see this uh, in, in all parts of the world. And I, I say populism in its pure sense. I'm not talking about populism in the, the dirty, evil, scary sense that the media uses it, but, but this thing of, of the people, what is good for the people. And there's been an anti-elite pivot that has changed the axis of politics so much so that people on the left and people on the right in some areas tend to coalesce behind this idea that, you know, we've got some serious concerns with this. And I, I won't play the clip. You can find it on True North if you'd like. But one of the interesting uh, people I spoke to was this older woman who's a climate protester from Switzerland. And, you know, normally the climate protesters and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And we probably don't. But she was not a hypocrite. Because she and her little group of climate activists walked to Davos and they were just as unnerved by the private jet flying limo riding elites as I was. In, in their case, they thought, you know, these people aren't actually honest about what they want to do for the climate. Uh, my view on this was that I think they're honest about what they want to do. They may not be honest about their intentions and it becomes part of the control system. So we've got lots more clips and highlights that we're going to be uh, point, pointing to as the show progresses. But as I said, I want to take your questions here. So if you're watching live on Facebook or on YouTube, post them away and we'll try to get to as many as possible here. Uh, Lynn said, did it feel scary? No, you know, never, never, never did it feel scary. I wasn't sure what the access situation would be like, because as I said uh, beforehand, I wasn't accredited. They denied my accreditation request. And when I got there, I knew that there was an open street. It's called the promenade. It's where all the shops and booths and all that are. But I didn't know how much I'd be able to go in and out and, and go around. And I no one, no one gave me any grief at all. I shouldn't say that. I mean, some people didn't want to talk to me. Like some people ran away from me, like Mark Carr. We'll play, play that clip in a moment. Uh, but no one uh, had gave me any issues. There was one point where I saw a group of police walking towards me and I'm like, uh oh, is the jig up? But then they just got to me, said hello and, and walked past. So I didn't feel any risk at all, um, but I appreciate your concern. I think the, the one thing that is interesting, though, is that Davos is very expensive. And it's very difficult to get to. So had to fly to Zurich. I rented a car. You can also take the train. It's fairly expensive to stay in town. I couldn't stay in town because the World Economic Forum controls all of the accommodations there. So I stayed in another town over, which was a bit cheaper and was actually available. And as a result, if you were a group of protesters or scrappy independent media, it's difficult to get there. And, and I think that they've kind of enjoyed the World Economic Forum and the elites there, this idea of having a safe space that others can't get there, which is why so many of them were just walking around not really worried. Like, you know, I bumped into the president of Microsoft at one point and Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada and the head of the IMF. I didn't uh, have my camera running at the time, but, you know, she was three feet away from me at a certain point. So they're not used to having people there that aren't like them. And I think that was it. Now, maybe maybe that'll change now that I was there. And, you know, next time around, it'll be more challenging. But I, I think that was why it was so easy to, to get around. Uh, let's see, who else do we have here? Um... Uh, another question from someone, uh, actually a lot of people have asked this, who from Canada attended? So from the Canadian government, 
just one person, and that was uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who's the Industry and Innovation Minister, and he was the only Canadian government delegate. There was no Trudeau, no Christian Freeland, no Patty Hydu, nothing like that. And he was on this panel called, it was something about the jobs of tomorrow. And he talked about some stuff that really wasn't all that substantive. Uh, the one thing that I, I really found annoying that he was trying to say is that, you know, young people don't want jobs. They they only want jobs that are green and jobs that are uh, meaningful to them. And, and in order to be meaningful, they have to be uh, green and we have to transition people away and, and all of that. Uh, but even then, it, it's just that regular old pablum that you get from uh, some liberal ministers. And I would say it, it's hard to, I mean, young people don't seem to want jobs now, which is why we have a labor shortage. So I, I can't necessarily disagree with his premise. Although, again, I, I disagree wildly with the conclusion. As far as non-government Canadian delegates, though, there were a fair amount. And I didn't quite see, oh, I didn't see many of them. I did see some of them, like Michelle Romano, who's a, a tech investor. And I think she was or is on the show Dragon's Den. She was there. Uh, David Walmsley, who's the editor-in-chief of The Globe and Mail, he was there. Uh, apparently, I learned at the end, so I didn't get to actually look for any of them, there were some higher-ups from SNC-Lavalin that were there. And you can take from that what you will. Uh, who else was there? SNC Lavalin. We you had some people from some tech companies um, that were there and Canadian offices. There was a, a Canadian journalist there from the Wall Street Journal, Elena Cherney. Uh, and Wall Street Journal had a, a ton of people. So so there were a lot. But again, I mean, most, most people, when they ask about the Canadian delegation, they're asking who from government was there. And as far as that, it was a very small, austere delegation. It was a delegation of one. And I have to wonder why that is. And I'm, I'm mixed on that. And I haven't gotten any official answer from the government. I think it may be that they're very aware of how more people are paying attention to the WEF right now. So I, I think because of the, the so-called conspiracy theories, they were nervous about the appearance of going. I also think that right now we have a cost of living crisis. We have an energy crisis. We have uh, the world on the cusp of war with Russia, Ukraine. The idea of billionaires gallivanting with politicians in the Swiss Alps is not something that's easy to sell to an electorate right now. And, and I don't know, in a cost of living crisis, an energy crisis, all of these things, if we want Canadian officials on panels talking about the need to transition away from oil and gas when we can barely afford energy right now, and their solutions are somehow even more expensive, or their so-called solutions. So I think that's what I would uh, answer as that. But again, I mean, that's the question that keeps coming in. Who from Canada is there? I'm going to work on a list of the ones that I know of, and we'll, we'll publish that at some point. Uh, someone says here, I understand the people at Davos feel they are elites or superior people. After being there, do you feel you're as good or better than the so-called elites? Well, unlike them, I don't view myself in terms of being better than or less than other people. I try to be me. I try to be a good person. I try to treat people I encounter with dignity unless they give me a reason to uh, believe they shouldn't be treated in a dignified way, which fortunately is, is very rare. But here's something I have to tell you about, and I, I posted about this on Twitter. There, I, I should have told uh, my producer, Sean, to get the graphic of it, but there's this really hilarious and pathetic caste system with badges at Davos, with badges. So everyone has to wear an ID badge. And normally at a conference, any conference I've ever been to, 
I could not take a badge off quickly enough. It's like, if you need to wear one to get into the room, you do it. But the second you can, you just rip it off because they always look tacky just wearing all of these, these, these name tags from conferences. At Davos, people love them. They love the badges because the badges signify status. And how important you are is reflected in the color of your badge. So the, it, the, the best thing you could have is a white badge with a blue line. And a white badge with a blue line, it has your name in big, bold letters. So what I was doing is when people walked by who looked important, you could tell, I'd like Google them and then see like, oh, this is, uh, oh, you know, this is just the guy who works at Qualcomm or whatever. And then you say, oh, this is, you know, the head of climate for the World Economic Forum. Okay, let's talk to her. But uh, the white badge with the blue line means you're one of the uh, the elites. You're one of the people that the WEF, the WEF as they call it, has invited. If you've got a white badge with no blue line, it means you're the spouse of someone who is invited. So you're kind of important, but not as important as them. If you're an orange badge, then you're a journalist that's there covering it. But some journalists had white badges because they were on like the WEF's handpicked list. So there, there were like New York Times and Wall Street Journal people that had white badges because they were part of the handpicked elites in the media that WEF wanted there. And then you've got like green badges were the entourages of people. With, I'm not making this up. Green badges were the entourages and staff of people with white badges. So the important white badge people would be surrounded by two or three green badge people. So you could tell who the white badge people were by looking at uh, the green badges. Like, but they, they love this. They all love the status that this signifies. And then there were like other ones that I couldn't figure out. Like one of them, the police had a black badge. But if you were part of a security entourage that came from somewhere else, you'd have like a purple badge with a red line. And then there was a hotel badge that said you're only allowed to go to the hotels, but you can't go anywhere else. Like it was just, it was this bizarre thing, but it shows how status obsessed they are. And people talk about this. Like I was chatting up one guy who was actually on my flight to Zurich and he was going to WEF, but he, he didn't have credentials or anything. And the way he talked about it, he's like, yeah, but that's not, I don't have a white badge or anything. So like he was like so sad that he was going there and didn't have a wife a white badge. So that was I, I think the uh, the big challenge here. So in any case, we will. Who's call? Someone's calling me right now, and it looks like a number I know. But uh, I'm on air, so you get my undivided attention. Well, I don't know if it's undivided if I look to check the phone, but I guess for the most part undivided. I, I want to play another clip, and and this one just shows the divide between real people and Davos people. And I, well, I'm actually going to play two clips for you, but but one of them I, I think did very well because people saw just how out of touch it was making them feel like they were and just so disconnected from the reality of the people that their policies are governing. And this was a discussion on energy and climate, like, you know, 90% of the sessions. And it was a Norwegian, uh, the CEO of a Norwegian finance company named uh, Christian Brathen or Brathen. And she was talking about the transition away from oil and gas. And just contextually here, specifically its effect on small and medium-sized businesses, who she was saying, understandably so, don't have the means to go, go along with this the way the giant companies do. Giant companies, they have the money, they can go with these pie-in-the-sky ideas. But she was saying, small and medium businesses, it's not as easy for them. And did that mean we should hold back? Oh, not at all. To accept that there will be some pain in the process. Uh, the pace that we need will 
uh, will open up for missteps. Mm. Uh, it will open up for uh, shortages on energy. It will create inflationary pressures. And maybe we need to start talking about that, that that pain is actually worth it. Because if we don't, uh, there's no business yeah. case, okay. there's no economy, there's, there's no welfare. But, but so far, I think we are, have been a little bit careful actually talking about the pain in the short term that is likely to come from, from, the, from this the very important yeah. change. Yeah. See, it's all abstract to them. It's all abstract to them. Oh, yeah, the pain, the pain. Yeah, it's going to be there, but it's all worth it. Because if we don't have pain, then there's going to be no climate and no economy and no world, and we're all going to be dead. So it, it's go along with the green agenda or die is basically the message. And, and if you're a business owner that can't afford to uh, pay your electricity bill or your heating bill, a load of good this, oh, but it's all worth it. It's all worth it. It's all going to be good in the long run. A load of good that message is. And, and these people, as we know, don't even practice what they preach. And one great example of this, and I'm glad the moderator did it, was when they surveyed the room to ask about what they're doing to reduce their carbon footprint, specifically with electric vehicles, which, of course, are supposed to be this ascendant thing that we're all supposed to be on. But, uh, well, not the people of Davos. So I'm going to throw this immediately out to the audience and say, how many of you are driving an electric vehicle at the moment. One, two, three, four. So I would say that probably constitutes less than 5% of the persons uh, sitting here in this room. <laughs> and I don't know if that's what, I mean, she, that might have been the point she was going for. I don't think it was like it was. I said it was a cell phone because I think it was a cell phone for the WEF, not a cell phone for her. But she's proving that all of these people are saying it, but when push comes to shove, they're not doing it. And it's the the private jets, it's the limos. I mean, this clip ended up being again not. I, I'd say the most exceptional journalism because it was just you know pointing my phone out the window of the car and documenting what was happening on the road. But people loved it. People loved this video. So, I mean, again, 12 seconds, I, and I started filming late because at first I was just staring at it and it was uh, Beamer, 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 Mercedes, 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 Beamer, Mercedes, Audi, Mercedes. Like it was just this lineup of limos waiting to get into Davos because the security checkpoint was slowing them down. And there were a couple of hybrids and electric cars in the mix as well. If you ordered an Uber in Davos, your two options were green or black. And black is like the limo. And green is, uh, you know, the eco one. And you better believe all the people were taking the limos, which were just lined up uh, as people were, were trying to get through. So these things are, are sort of cliches now. We all know that that's what happens. We all know that's what these things are about. But seeing it firsthand, that it's not just a cliche, it's not just a punchline, this is actually revealing the divide between the governors and the governed was, I think, interesting to see. And, and it was almost reaffirming in a way that, yes, this stereotype is not just a cheap laugh. It's genuinely, genuinely this font of hypocrisy that we see behind uh, the World Economic Forum and, and a lot of the people going there. And I, I don't know if we have, uh, let me check with uh, my producer here. I don't know if, we, do we have the video of, uh, of going after the head of climate, uh, that woman? We do. Okay. So this, this one is great. No, he says no now. 
not the woman. Okay, never mind on that one. But there's this one video where the head of climate for, for WEF was walking by and I asked her, you know, is do you tell people not to travel by private jet? And she turned around and said, uh, you know, I've, I've got to go. And, uh, and then she walked away. And I'm like, you know, that, that had more syllables than yes or no. But to his credit, I did speak uh, later on to someone else who is also a higher up at WEF, and he said that they do actually tell people not to travel by private jet. He, he, he took a few moments and chatted and said they do tell people, but some do anyway. So perhaps there's a bit of internal strife within the World Economic Forum here. Uh, anyway, again, back to your questions here. I, I go on tangents every now and then. Oh, on that note, Anita says, uh, did you ever get an answer? about uh, the elite's carbon footprint to get to Davos? Short answer, no. Uh, but we did hear all about how they try to do things like offsets and green and sustainability and all of that. But a lot of it, I, I think, is, is smoke and mirrors. Uh, if not for the organization, certainly for the participants. Uh, Patty writes, did they have a lot of freedom protesters? Uh, zero. Zero that I saw. Um, there was one group of climate protesters that I saw on the first day. Uh, I met a couple of individual people that were locals that were not WEF fans at all, uh, but no freedom protesters. And I, and I don't know if that was because, as I said earlier, it's very difficult and expensive to get there. Or if it's just because people weren't doing it. Or if, uh, I mean, one example of this is that uh, in order to protest in Davos, in the town, you need a permit. And the police say on the website that if you don't have one, they will use whatever means they have to to clear you out. And I don't know how well they were enforcing that. Like there were a couple of little demonstrations on climate and there was one on like Ukraine. Uh, but I don't know if these people had permits and police were uh, leaving them alone for that reason or if they, they just didn't care. But uh, that's also something that could be off-putting. Maybe they weren't issuing permits to people that were there to protest for freedom. And let's see what else we have here. Um, do you think they're going to completely stop the independent press next year? So uh, this is an interesting question. And I, I want to go back a little bit because originally what I wanted to do was cover COP26 in Glasgow in November, which was the big climate summit where all the heads of government were going to gather in Scotland and they were going to get together and, and plan the sequel to the Paris Agreement. And we went through a huge lengthy process with the United Nations to try to get accredited. And at the end, the UN said, no, we're, we're not accrediting you. And, and we thought about going anyway and ultimately opted against it because we knew that the UN would have the whole country controlled. And we couldn't even get, I looked up where the security perimeter was going to be. I wouldn't have even been able to get on the street to interview people coming and going. And then World Economic Forum came up and we said, well, you know, this is outdoors. It's an open city. It's a they can control the venue, but they can't control the city. So we thought even without being accredited, we'd be able to get somewhere where important people would be that we'd want to put questions to. And we did that and, and we still tried to get accredited. Uh, and then as we reported a while back, they were only letting I mean, to even request accreditation to even request accreditation, you had to be invited. And we asked for the invitation. We asked for the password to get to the accreditation portal and no one responded. No one responded. So we said, we're, we're going anyway. Now, I, I will say when I was there and I actually did get to speak to one person at WEF, he personally said 
uh, you know, to reach out to him directly next time for the next one. And he, he didn't make any offer. He didn't make any promises. Uh, someone else said, Andrew, did you drink the Kool-Aid? No, no, no. I'm not like a West Shill now. Uh, but he said to reach out to him directly, which I will do if we're going back. And, and that's something that I will do to try to get accredited. Because even though I, I'm very happy about the coverage that we were able to get from outside... I also think that to be in the room and in the venue and to have that additional level of access is important. But let me just explain the access situation here because there was the the Davos Congress Center, which is where the actual event is taking place. And there were the hotels. Some of the hotels were restricted only to uh, people with the, you know, special status or whatever. But the streets were open. And on the street, you had all of these uh, different houses and shops and booths. And some of these, some of these were very weird and they were all fake. Like, that's the great thing for the people that are all about renewability and sustainability. They're fake. Like, I think we have a picture of the SAP house, uh, which is one of these things. So you look at this building and this is not the way the building looks normally. They've put up that facade and that's one of the, the more muted ones. There was another one as well. I'll show you the Saudi house uh, and the Saudi house has... Uh, there, I think we have a close-up too, where you can see the intricate woodwork. That they, well, not that one. No, the uh, of the building itself, whatever it is. But there's a where you see the intricate woodwork that they've put up, and it's all fake. It's all phony. And, and since we did put it up, let, let's throw that Saudi cafe up again. So Saudi Arabia. Uh, you can just go into the Saudi cafe and you can get a coffee or a pastry. Or I had this delicious uh, fig pudding or date pudding that had like a lime sorbet on it. And it came with a Saudi coffee on the side. There it is, uh, promoting Saudi tourism. And uh, this is the thing. Now, I did this for the comedy of it. I'm not like a Saudi shill now. Uh, but everyone was going along with it. Everyone was happy. Everyone was hello, hunky-dory. We've all decided we like Saudi Arabia now, and we're going to go along with this lie that they're this hospitable tourist destination. And it wasn't just the Saudi cafe. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman Al Saud, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, he has a foundation, the Mohammed bin Salman Foundation, and he was giving out free ice cream. And they had a little ice cream booth set up outside the Mohammed bin Salman Foundation. And you could get, uh, as you see, their saffron cardamom, or I forget what the other one is. There's a third one, whatever on the bottom is. You can get different types of ice cream. And oh, they had sprinkles you could put on and it was so delicious and no one wearing hijabs or kneecaps there. And uh, we're all supposed to just forget that wasn't like the world outraged when uh, Mohammed bin Salman ordered that uh, journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi killed? I guess not because... They give, once they give you ice cream, it doesn't matter anymore. But, but that was the whole thing. So much of it was just phony. And everyone just going along with it. Fake buildings, fake Saudi hospitality. And, and all of this stuff was open. I mean, I, I walked into the Saudi cafe. I walked into India House. I walked into, I didn't go to Greece House, but I walked by Greece House. And they had Poland House and Ukraine House and all of these things. And all of these companies had these uh, displays and parties. And some of them were invite only, like Facebook and Google wouldn't let you in unless you had an invitation. But others were all too happy to bring, uh, bring you in. Like Intel was, every time I walked by, there was this guy from the Intel house that was telling me, oh, you should come. We've got snacks. We've got food. And I mean, he knew looking at me that I, I, the snacks would get me in. Uh, and I never actually ended up making it. But uh, uh, maybe I, I had the date pudding from Saudi Arabia, but I didn't have the orders from Intel. So this is the type of stuff that in Davos, your life is just constructed around. It's like, which party do I want to go to? Because this is all they're doing. I mean, one protester called it corporate Disneyland, which I felt was a very good way of describing it. 
Uh, Lynn uh, writes again, uh, were you able to get into any of the meetings? So as I said, not officially, um, a lot of them were live streamed, but I was able to get into all of these other spots which were more revealing that were not official to WEF, but were adjacent to it. And they were targeting the audiences because what's happening is these companies spend millions and millions of dollars. They literally take over businesses that exist throughout the year. And for, you know, 51 weeks, they're, you know, a clothing store or a ski shop. But for one week a year, they evict them empty everything out, fill it in with stuff connected to this. And they host these parties there and they host displays and companies are trying to bring in government officials to, you know, make relationships and get, you know, ease regulatory burdens. And then governments will hold them like the Namibian government and the Greek government and Indian government. And they all hold these because they want to start attracting capital. So that's the, the thing here. You've got this fusion of public and private sector that is where things get very, very dicey because you don't know what discussions are happening behind closed doors. You don't know what these relationships are, are forging are. And, and that's where I think people are very uncomfortable and, and why it starts to look like a, a plutocracy or a kleptocracy of just governing by, you know, wheeling, dealing, corrupt elites and the wealthy and all of that. And, and that's why people are, are so, I think, justifiably skeptical of what's happening here. Um, let's see what else we have here. Are we going to own nothing and be happy about it? You know, for, for people that have previously talked about this idea of in the future owning nothing and being happy about it. They sure tend to own a lot of things. They, they sure tend to own a lot of things. Um, Lisa said, did you, how did you get the clips? Did you attend the sessions? No, I, I mentioned this here uh, in the past. A lot of their stuff is public. They have private panels, but a lot of their panels are public. And I, I think we need to focus on what it is that they want to talk about. They, they're very proud of a lot of these things. They're very proud of this idea of championing so many of these discussions. I mean, just take a look at Klaus Schwab. This was the chairman and founder of WEF, who at the very beginning was talking about how what's happening there is going to alter the future, the course of human history. Let's also be clear. The future is not just happening. The future is built by us, by a powerful community as you here in this room. We have the means to improve the states of the world, but two conditions are necessary. The first one is that we act all as stakeholders of larger communities, that we serve not our only self-interests, but we serve the community. That's what we call stakeholder responsibility. And second, that we collaborate. And this is the reason why you find many opportunities here during the meeting to engage into very action and impact-oriented initiatives to make progress related to specific issues on the global agenda. The future is built by us! Yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and you have to wonder, I mean, the most charitable defense of this is that it's all bluster is that it's all just phony and nonsense and that they're all just so pretending to be important and puffing their chests and all of that. That's like the most charitable defense, which is weird in and of itself. But that's the pitch. That's Klaus Schwab's pitch to companies, to countries, that if you come here, this is the place you get things done. And I would look at this and say, well, people are spending millions of dollars 
government officials, when they show up, make big policy announcements there. Would they be doing this if it were nothing? Would they be doing this if the power wasn't in the room? If the future wasn't being built by the people there? I don't think they would. I don't think they would at all. And, And this idea that Schwab indicated near the end there, stakeholder capitalism. That's what they call it. It's this idea that capitalism is no longer about shareholders. It's no longer about who owns the company. It's about companies and capitalists that have to be beholden to government interest, to community interest, to social interest, to UN interest. And it's about diluting this idea of property and this idea of, of capitalism. And and one thing I should have I should take a, I should have taken a picture of it I didn't but uh, there's there are these things called sustainable development goals which are UN initiatives that are about like gender equality and education and sanitation and climate and they're very big and the SDGs are kind of like the backbone of government priorities and also a lot of companies have signed on to SDGs and and there's an SDG logo which is like a a semicircle or a, a full circle with these little wedges that almost look like trivial pursuit pieces and they're all different colors each one representing one of the SDGs one of the sustainable development goals and you'd walk around and you'd see people wearing these SDG pins and you'd look at them and say, well, that, uh, oh, that must be a UN employee. So you'd walk up to them. And there was one guy, I'm like, oh, this guy must be with the UN. And I walked up to him and it was Brad Smith, who's the president of Microsoft. And then someone else is wearing a, an SDG pin and you walk up and it's like, oh, it's the head of Salesforce. And someone else is wearing an SDG pin and it's like someone else who runs some company. And you're like, why are these corporations and their leaders wearing United Nations pins? And it's because the line between public and private simply doesn't exist in Davos. Uh, Someone says here, do you think Klaus Schwab is the head of it all? No. Well, I mean, he's the head of the WEF. um, But but no, I I don't think he's sitting back, back in the mountains of the Swiss Alps and pulling the strings on Canada or the UK or France or anything like that. And, And this is where I think... Going there was important because there needed to be this nuanced discussion about what was happening. I think the problem is you've got WEF is putting out this ideological framework that a lot of companies and countries want to buy into. And I think that when you have people like Justin Trudeau that love this agenda, that love these initiatives, it is dangerous. It's the same as signing a treaty. I mean, everyone's been up in arms about this, uh, the amendments to the international health regulations that are being uh, worked on in uh, Geneva, Switzerland at the World Health Organization this week. And a lot of people are saying it's going to surrender sovereignty. Well, it does. I mean, a country can voluntarily exit a treaty anytime it wants. The point is that when a country is part of a treaty, it signals their intent to uphold that. I mean, in international law, nothing, Nothing can prevent a country from withdrawing a treaty. And even if a country is in a treaty and breaks the rules, it's technically illegal, but there's no enforcement of it. There's no higher power that can make a country do something. The problem is that these countries want to. And this is what people forget. My issue with WEF is not that Klaus Schwab is running Canada. My issue with WEF is that they're talking about what I think are very dangerous and radical ideas that in Canada, government officials seem to love and want to go along with. That's the big risk here. And that's what we need to stop. And and when all of these people are brought together in one room, why do you think it's so important for them to have an in-person conference? 
They could do it all by Zoom. They could do this all by video conference. It's because they want these people all under one roof. They want Francois-Philippe Champagne to be able to shake hands with the head of some tech company behind the scenes. And maybe they're going to work on, hey, I want you to set up an office in Canada. Maybe they're going to be talking about policy and it's taking place in this very untransparent way. So that, I think, is the risk of WEF to Canada. It's not an intergovernmental organization. It's not a body that's created by countries. It's a body that's created by the private sector, but almost exists as this like shadow UN organization. I mean, Canada gave WEF, I think it was like $3 million we reported over the last several years. But most of uh, Salesforce, or I should, there's a Freudian slip, most of WEF's money comes from the private sector. Salesforce, uh, which is a, a tech company, is a big backer of it. Microsoft is a big backer. Most of their comp uh, money comes from the private sector. And, and the left should hate that. The left should hate that, that we have all these government officials bowing at, uh, bowing before this private sector organization, but it's because they're trying to make it so murky and it's all about the elites against everyone else more than it's about left versus right. And I don't think this should be just a, a so-called conservative conspiracy theory to take aim at what's happening here. And, and again, no one wants to talk about the obvious. No one wants to talk about the effect, especially from an oil and gas producing nation like Canada, of what these policies are going to mean. I mean, Mark Carney, who's the former governor of the Bank of Canada, then he was the governor of the Bank of England. Now he's the UN's special envoy for climate. I asked him about it and he didn't have time because it was a spontaneous interview. Hi, Mr. Carney. Andrew Lawton with uh, True North in Canada. Nice to see you. Uh, I, I, I never do, uh, I never do uh, spontaneous. I understand. My one question is, could the Canadian oil and gas sector survive the net zero approach that's being promoted here? I, as I said, I never do. You want, if you want an interview with me, uh, like everybody else, you make a request and okay. we can have it. And will you accept that? Like everybody else, if I can finish so I will take him up on that. I, I am going to make a request because I would love to speak with him. And I should say, just as a fun story, Mark Carney was walking around nonstop. I saw him the day after. And I said, you know, can we do an interview now? Because it's less spontaneous. And to his credit, he laughed and said, well, think of how much less spontaneous it'll be tomorrow. Uh, so the answer was, was still no. So I'll still request an interview with him. I'll still uh, go through those proper channels. I don't think he's going to take it. Because again, they're not used to being around people that are going to ask challenging questions. And True North's coverage, I should say, did something that mattered internationally. Rebel News was also there. Abi Yamini, who you actually saw uh, in the frame with Mark Carney. And he spoke to Mark Carney after me and, and didn't get anywhere either. But I mean, Rebel News did, did great work there. True North, I'm very proud of the work that I did and, and our team back in Canada. And the one thing that I, I think needs to be said here is that no one else was doing it. No one else was talking about it. And, and the clips that went viral, the clips of, you know, the Alibaba guy or uh, this woman from Australia who uh, was talking about a recalibration of freedom of speech. I won't play it, but you've seen the clip now. I mean, these clips that were circulating were because we were monitoring them and putting those out. And it was everyone taking our footage and, and sharing. And we're glad because we wanted people to see this. We wanted people to know what was happening. But so much of this takes place in the shadows. And, and one thing that I, I'm particularly proud of here is speaking to the Indian Minister of Gas and Petroleum, um, who on the panel, 
on the discussion was saying, yeah, we need to accelerate our transition and move off of oil and gas and green energy. And they did a survey on that panel. And in that survey, they talked about how, you know, all these people around uh, the table were uh, wanting to prioritize the energy transition. And, and he had a very different note when I caught up with him privately on the streets of Davos. We're on a panel about oil and gas and energy this morning. Do you think uh, phasing out of fossil fuels is actually a realistic goal? Look, uh, I said what I had to, but you know, if you were to do that survey in uh, different parts of the world, if you were to do it, for instance, in South, Ash South Asia or Africa or in uh, Latin America, you'd get results that might be a little different from the kind of results you're getting here. So, so he just admits that, yeah, when all is said and done, you know, everywhere else in the world, they're going to view this a lot differently than they are around the table here. And I thought that was a, an obvious point, but it was a very candid one. And I'm thinking, you know, why, uh, why didn't he mention it in the room? Why didn't he mention it in the room if it was just so self-evident? But that's the whole point. They all sit around the table and sit on their panels and they talk about the world and the people in it in abstractions without understanding that they are real people with real challenges. And, and that was why it was so important to be there, to, to have a voice and to call out the elites, to put questions to them. I, I, I didn't play every video that we did. We've published a lot online. I think we'll have some more in the days ahead. But I, I wanted to stress the importance of actually having independent media on the ground there. And, and again, I mean, Switzerland is not an inexpensive place. And I, I almost feel bad. I almost feel like it's self-indulgent to uh, ask for support to do this. But I, I guarantee you it wasn't a vacation. This was something that was, was very difficult work, but I think it was very important work. And I have a couple of questions. I mean, the first is if you can support this and cover our costs to have been there and, co and covered this, please do. You can head on over to donate.tnc.news. And the other that I would ask you is, would you want us to go back? Because they're going to be doing this in, in January. And by all accounts, it's going to be a much bigger ordeal because this time a lot of leaders sat it out. Justin Trudeau wasn't there. Boris Johnson wasn't there. Uh, Emmanuel Macron wasn't there. The only G7 leader they had was uh, Olaf Scholz of Germany. And then they had like Ursula von der Leyen of, of the European Commission and, you know, all the global people. But even then, not a lot of them. So... You know, if, if they're going to go back to full strength WEF in January, which is their regular schedule, uh, ski season in the Alps, would you want us to be there and cover this again? Because right now, I mean, I, I, anyone can just look at the comment sections of our videos over the last few weeks, and uh, everyone has um, been asking about WEF for, for months and months and months and months, and all of the questions and stories and the appetite for content. So I don't know how much of that's going to be there in January. So let us know what you think in the comments here. Uh, should we go back in January uh, and and basically try to put, again, these questions to these people that tend to speak in abstractions? Now, the one thing I did for fun, the one thing I did for fun, I didn't do it for me, I did it for all of you uh, because I, I try to be a self-sacrificing person and I'll surrender my dignity on the altar of comedy. There was this field, this field. Oh no, we don't even have it. Oh, I was going to play a clip for you to mock myself. And I'm just being told that we don't actually have it. So I don't actually get to mock myself. But if you head to my Twitter, it's the pin tweet. of I, I decided, I know Julie Andrews in Sound of Music was in the Austrian Alps rather than the Swiss Alps, but it just looked so perfect. So I replicated a classic movie moment. And uh, that is something that I will... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> you you can look that up yourself. That's like part of the after show. That's like the uh, the bonus uh, bo- the bonus video I did to uh, to appeal to the uh, the donors of this. But in all honesty, I want to just thank all of you who uh, shared our content. I mean, we had a global global audience for this. Uh, truly, we had uh, people from around the world. I was doing nightly hits on GB News in the UK. Uh, today, I did a couple of uh, radio interviews about this in the United States. People around the world were following True North coverage, and that was only because of you that believed in this, that wanted to make it happen and amplified it. So uh, thank you to you all. Glad to be back here. Thank you so much, or uh, or uh, Dunkeschen, as they say in the Swiss Alps, where I was anyway. Uh, but we'll all have you. We'll all have a, a lot more to say about this next week when the show returns. So have a great weekend, everyone. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show on True North, the Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you. God bless. And good day to you all. For listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.